2 Samuel. We're in chapter 8 this morning. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Lord, we just thank you for the chance to gather your church and your name. Jesus, you're our shepherd. You're our pastor. Lord, you're the good shepherd. And we just want to come to you, Lord. We want to hear your voice. You said, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door for me, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. And Lord, we, we hear your voice this morning. We desire to have fellowship with you, God. We don't want just some intellectual exercise of reading a book. We want to meet with the living God. And so, Lord, we just express that desire to you. We pray that your spirit would speak to us, God. Pray, Lord, that this would be a time of fellowship with each other and with you, tabling with you, Lord, eating with you. And so, God, just uh, speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet. Well, 2 Samuel, where are we at this point in time? So let me just remind you, maybe you're joining us online this morning. Welcome. Maybe uh, you haven't been off for a little while. Just remind you where things are at. David's kingship is firmly established in the account of Samuel by this point in time. All the tribes of Israel have been unified under his leadership. He has established Jerusalem as the new capital city of this unified nation of Israel. King David has brought the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant, into the city. It's housed in the tabernacle, the tent that the Lord had for it. Jerusalem has become the political and religious center for the tribes of Israel. And it was a glorious time to be counted amongst the people of God. It was exciting. And in his heart for the Lord, David finally verbalized this vision and this dream that he had as a man after the heart of God to build a permanent house, a temple for the Ark of the Covenant so that it would no longer dwell in a tent. And it was a godly desire. It was a godly dream. And David told Nathan his plans. But when Nathan left that night and said, go do it, the Lord spoke to him and told him that David had a godly desire and dream, but he was not the man for the task. And so Nathan went to David and he said, David, the Lord says to you this, you've been a man of war. There's been a lot of blood spilled with your hands. And the temple of the Lord is going to be built by a man who is a man of peace. And and what I love about that is this, is that ultimately we know this, that, that, that the one who was to establish the house of the Lord and the presence of God was not one who would have blood on his hand, the blood of others on his hands. He'd shed his own blood to build a house for the Lord, to make you and I the place to house the presence of God. We're the temple of the Lord because Jesus has shed his blood. But before Jesus would do that, Nathan said, your son is going to build you a temple. This is not the job for you, David. And so David, David said, Lord, I want to I build a house for you. And the Lord said, David, I love that you want to do that, but it's one of your descendants who's going to build the house and he will rule on the throne of Israel forever. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we've spent some time in the last couple of weeks, uh, is really the, the pinnacle of the whole narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel, the central chapter. And the Lord says to David, David, 
I took you from the shepherd's field, and I'm the one who's going to build you a house. And so we come to 2 Samuel chapter 8, and this is, I would just say this. We're going to go through it quick. We're going to do three chapters this morning, okay? Did you pack your lunch? Anybody got some loaves and fishes? Maybe Jesus can do something for us? No, just kidding. We're not going to stay that long. Um, this is a count. We're going to do 8, 9, and 10. And, and in chapter 8, this is a count of a count after victories of David because the Lord's blessing was on his life and on the house of Israel. This is the, the author of 2 Samuel demonstrating to us that God was doing the very thing that he had promised David, that he would build him a house. So let's read this. Verse 1, it says this. After this, after what? After the covenant is formed with David, the Davidic covenant. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them and took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. Now we know this, the Philistines are like the dread, terror, enemy of the Israelites for many decades. They were the superpower of the region, the continual thorn in the side of the children of Israel. And Methagamah means this, David took the mother city, which I think was probably Gath, where Goliath had come from. And the Philistines were the superpower of the region. And when God blessed David, he drove them back, took their mother city, and pushed them as far back as they had ever been. Verse 2. And he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line he's to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadiezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadiezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. What an awesome line right there. The Lord gave him victory wherever he went. That, that is the theme of this whole chapter. If you got a pen and you got a Bible in your hands, that's the, that's the sentence to underline that last sentence of verse 6 because it, it demonstrates to us that God is working through and for David because the Lord was blessing him because he had promised that he would build his house, that one would come to whom the kingdom would be ruled forever and ever. One of his descendants. Verse 7. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadiezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and the city of Berothai, cities of Hadiezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadiezer, Toai sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadiezer and defeated him. For Hadiezer had often been at war with Toai, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, gold, and bronze. 
Verse 11, these also King David dedicated to the Lord together with silver, the silver and the gold. And he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadiezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. Well, this is incredible. David, it is victory everywhere he turns. Isn't this awesome? This is the Lord's work. Kings and world leaders are recognizing the power of David. They're seeking him out like Toai. Make a covenant of peace with me, David, that I would have your grace and blessing. From those he subdued, David began to just accumulate mass amounts of wealth, gold, silver, bronze, and and though he would not be the one to build the temple of the Lord, he began to stockpile treasure for the future building of this temple. And he subdued the enemies of Israel. It was an incredible time of victory for, for Israel, for David, for the, the children of the Lord. Check out verse 13. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And again, it says, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. There it is again. Underline it again. If you got a pen, verse 14, last sentence. That's the summary statement of this chapter. These were the Lord's victories. Verse 15 says this. So David reigned over all Israel, and David, I love this, David administered justice and equity to all people. Justice and equity to all people. I actually think this, I was thinking about it, I'm like, that is the highest compliment that can ever be given to any world leader, don't you think that? Any ruler of a nation, any prime minister, any president, to say, Wow, under that leadership, there is equity and justice for all. Justice and equity are the fruit of God's blessing on a nation. And in a nation like ours, where I believe you see we're seeing this eroded, I think we can only recognize this, that the Lord's lifting his hand. That the wrath of God is revealed, that's what Paul tells us, from heaven against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. And One of the things I found astounding in the leadership of our nation when I was just thinking about what's even gone down in the last couple weeks of the lower mainland, all the flooding, and man, the rain's coming up again, isn't it? I'm like, I I walked out to my truck this morning. I was standing in a puddle at our house. And uh, somebody else was telling me about waters rising as they, they noticed on their way to church here. And one of the things that I found astounding is this, is that there was no acknowledgement whatsoever, at least in my hearing, From any leader in our nation saying, we should pray. We should seek the Lord. I mean, that used to be a common thing that we would hear in our nation. You'd flick on the news and some tragedy would happen and people would at least mention, we're praying for you. But in our nation, there has become less and less acknowledgement of the living God. And we need the spirit of the Lord to move on the heart of our nation. Our our leaders gathered in parliament this week for the first time and they said this, the greatest danger we face is climate change. And the truth is this, the greatest danger is not something on the outside. The greatest danger a man ever faces is something on the inside. It's his own heart, 
his own sin, his own rebellion against the things of the Lord, the fleshly propensity to turn from God. We need leadership that calls us to seek the Lord. God bless David. Victory everywhere he turned and the fruit of it was this. There was equity and there was justice in the nation. He was a man upon whom the Lord had set his heart and the fruit was the blessing of that equity and justice being meted out on the people of God. Proverbs 14 verse 34 says this, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. As a nation, we need to turn our hearts to the Lord. Now it says this about these leaders that were around David, verse 16. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, one of these names, and Ahimelech and the son of Abathar were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaniah, the son of Jehodiah, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. This is amazing. Like you read this and it's like what the author is telling us is that around David, as God blessed him and as God was blessing the nation, as God was bringing victory, the Lord was also doing this. He was raising up many gifted leaders around David. It's interesting that it even says his sons were priests. Did you catch that? His sons were priests. The, the trans, that's what it's translated. They, it's interesting because they're from, David's family's from the tribe of Judah. They're not Levites. They didn't have a, a, a heritage or a, a lineage or a family line that gave them access to the priesthood. Some some suggest this, and I think it's probably likely that it, it's saying this, that David's sons were representatives of his kingship. They served as intermediaries between the king and all of these leaders. David and his trusted officials, and his sons worked with him to keep the nation on track. A, a priest, a priest is just that. In the temple, a priest was an intermediary between the Lord and his people, between God and the worshiper, a go-between. We know this, Jesus mediates before, for us before the Father in heaven. He's our great high priest. And so David's sons were mediating on behalf of their father's kingdom. So, I mean, chapter 8, this is all good, isn't it? It's awesome. It's all good. This summary is every godly leader's dream. That's what I would say. The blessing and victory of God was characteristic to everything that was going on in the kingdom of Israel. It is all good. So good that David looked around and he asked, wow, where else can I give justice? Where else can I just be fair to the people of God and give equity? Where else can I show the goodness and kindness of God and the spirit of the Lord pricked him? I think this. What said David, remember? Remember that man? The one who swore himself as your dreaded enemy? The one who sought to take your life? That King Saul who put you on the run for all those years, forced you to live in the wilderness? Remember him? You're asking me where you can be kind. Let's remember this enemy. Verse 1, chapter 9. David said, is there anyone left from the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? This is amazing. David remembered the house of Saul and he remembered Jonathan, a man who the scripture says that his friendship was better than the love of a woman. 
They had planned together that when David was king, Jonathan would help him rule and administrate the nation as a sort of co-regent. They'd rule together. They'd administrate the kingdom to the glory of God. But the Lord had seen that that hadn't happened, as we've seen through the, the writings of Samuel. Jonathan was killed. Killed in battle with his father Saul. And David remembered the house of Saul, and he remembered the goodness of God, and he said, Is there anyone in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan? Incredible grace. This is unmerited favor. Over the top. This is over the top. There's no obligation on David to do this. This is pure, unadulterated kindness. Now check it out, verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Verse 4. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Second Samuel chapter 4 sets us up for the story. It's been a while since we were there, but it tells us the background of this man, Mephibosheth, when he was just a boy, five years old. Uh, word came that his father, Jonathan, and his grandfather, Saul, had been killed in battle. And when the word of their death reached his home, his nurse took hold of him and fled to ensure his safety because he was part of the royal family and you don't know what's going to happen to him. And in the haste of the escape, somehow the boy fell and he was crippled. He was made lame, became lame. In those days... When a, when a throne would transition from one king to another, it was common practice. You, you put to death anyone who has any sort of lineage to the throne, to the line of ascension. This is why this nurse swept him away to protect his life. And David finds out that, that Jonathan has this one living son. He lived in this place called Lodabar, which means this, not a pasture. <laughs> That's all it means. It's kind of funny. It's like, this is a rocky, dry, barren, lifeless place. You know why it's called low to bar? Because you couldn't lower the bar any lower <laughs> than living there. <laughs> and you can imagine Mephibosheth being summoned to King David. This is life or death for him. He's already lame. Unable to walk. 
When, it came in, when he came into the presence of God, uh, sorry, into the presence of David, it's amazing what we read here that he's lame and yet still he falls on his face to the ground to pay homage to the king. He didn't know if he was going to die. He said to David, I'm, I'm your servant. And I can only imagine that his voice was trembling when those words came out of his mouth. And David said to him, you don't have to fear. For the sake of your father, I'm going to show you kindness. I restore to you everything that belonged to the house of Saul, and you will eat at my table always. And this is just a beautiful picture in the scripture. I mean, it's one of the, one of the most wonderful pictures of salvation in all of scripture, I would say to you. Because this is like the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to you. When it comes to our salvation, this is what it's like. What an awesome story. Mephibosheth had nothing to offer. He said, I'm as good as a dead dog. Which means he, he felt he was good for nothing. He was physically disabled. He was unable to walk. Everything he had was taken from him. No fault of his own. Just relation to the wrong man, the man of the flesh, Saul. Everything he had was taken from him. It was... It was, he came from low to bar, but in kindness, David reached into his situation, into the situation of this man's life, enriched him, restored him, freed him, and said, from now on, you eat at my table. It's amazing. David provided for him and invited him to the place of fellowship at the king's table the dinner table where there was a permanent seat reserved for Mephibosheth. It's amazing because Jesus does this for you and I. It's common heat. Anyone who's hungry, anyone who's thirsty, come to the table of the Lord. Always an open invitation from Jesus. He says, you can eat of me and you'll never hunger again. You can drink of me and I will satisfy your thirst, and out of your being will flow live, rivers of living water. This, is, this story is a picture of the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 12. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. What, again, what an amazing story that all is restored. Still unable to walk, I'll say that. But it's very important to this text that it tells us four times Mephibosheth was invited to the table of the king. Four times we are told because this is a grace 
that is so amazing it has to be emphasized. It's a reality that has to be driven home into the heart of everyone who reads this passage. It's amazing. Mephibosheth received the kindness of David. It's kindness received. But what's amazing is we turn to the next chapter where once again David reaches out in his kindness and this time the response is entirely different. That's what's so fascinating about these, these, these passages together. It's a wonderful time of victory for the people of God. David's just looking for areas and places to be gracious. Once again, he reaches out in kindness. And this time, rather than received, it's rejected. So I'd say this, chapter 9 is kindness received. Chapter 10 is kindness rejected. Let's check it out. Verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. Now, verse 2, the, the word that is translated in our ESV loyally, in, our, in the version that we're reading here, is the same word uh, from the Hebrew language, hesed, uh, which expresses kindness. It expresses love and kindness and acts of benevolence. That's the word. Mercy. Pity on those in misfortune. It's a deep, deep, deep expression of kindness. And David had a good relationship with the Ammonite king. When David, he had subdued him and he was under David's power. But when David was on the run from Saul, he had spent times where he was actually hiding out in the land of Moab. You'll recall from the book of Ruth that David's grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabitess. And so while on the run, David had lived there. He had forged some sort of relationship with this king that made for peace. And when he came to power... David and him had a relationship that was friendly. So when he died, naturally David reaches out to the son in kindness. It's like, it was like David reaching out in kindness to the son of Jonathan. It's very interesting. You've got two sons being reached out to. Both cases, David had a friendship and a relationship with the father. And he reached out in kindness to the children. I can't help but think this. Do you know the Lord that does that for our kids? If you know the Lord Jesus and you're in relationship with him and you love him and you serve him, do you know Jesus will reach out to your children? Hey, mom or dad, you can take hope in this. You can take hope in this, that if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you've entered into a covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you put your faith and your trust in him and you know salvation, then you can trust this, that in his kindness, in his hesed, in his mercy, in his benevolence, in his grace, the Lord Jesus will go to your children and he'd say, he'll say this, I invite you to the table. Come and eat with me. Come and know the mercy and kindness that your father knows. Come and know the mercy and kindness that your mother knows. Enter into covenant with me. I invite you. Will you let me show you?
my mercy and kindness. I think about Mephibosheth, the first son that this offer goes to. Mephibosheth was a broken man. He knew his own brokenness. It was plain for everyone else to see. They could see he couldn't walk. He lived in a barren place, away from the family inheritance. He knew that it was likely that he deserved, he was going to die, that he deserved to die. So to take David up on his offer from Mephibosheth wasn't a hard thing, you know. It was like, it wasn't a hard thing for him to say with a heart of humility, yeah, I will take what you are offering because I know what I am. I want what you're offering me, David. I'll be your servant. I will be your servant. And David said, that's right. And you're going to eat at my table. David reached out to Hanan, another son, expressed the exact same kindness. But this man was rich, a prince, proud, arrogant, self-centered, prideful. Let's see what happens. Verse 3. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half their beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Wow, what, what counsel this man gets, it's like they say, they say the counselors to Hanan say, this is a trick. This isn't an offer of kindness. This offer, it's not sincere. David's victorious everywhere he turns, everywhere he goes. And he just wants to spy out the land. He wants to overthrow you. And so I, I don't think you should respond to this offer of kindness. I, th I think this, you know, as I read that, I think when it comes to the offer of, of the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will always be similar voices in your life saying the same thing, offering their counsel, saying, you can't trust Jesus. You have to question the sincerity. It's a question the sincerity and the truthfulness of the offer. And this tells us this. Look at, I would tell you this, especially to those who are young. Who you take counsel from, it matters. Who are you listening to? It matters. Hanan listened to wise counsel. He grabbed these guys and cut their robes off, totally humiliate them, expose them. And he shaved off half their beards. And I mean, the Ammonites should have known you never mess with a man's beard. Never. <laughs> Which that would have been way cooler to say if I still have my beard. <laughs> so this is kindness rejected. That's what I want you to see. The startling thing about this is it's rejected and the result is so unnecessary. So much pain and sorrow follows the rejection of the kindness. One rejection of kindness brought down David's wrath. That's what you're about to see. And to me, it's amazing because you read this and it's like, wow, this was totally, totally avoidable. 
tens of thousands of people would have enjoyed the blessing of David's offer if it had been received, but instead it was rejected. Let's check it out. Verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they'd become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Bethhob, Bethrahab, and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. So they've, they've assembled now an army of 33,000. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out, drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rahab and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in the front and the rear. So Joab's facing this army. They've, they've, they're using the pincher movement. He chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Verse 12, I would say, is, is worth un underlying. I love it. Again, let me read it to you. Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. I love that. It's like, just be courageous. Just be a man or woman of courageous and stand up and do what's right and the Lord will do what he's going to do. Verse 15 now. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and Hadezar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. Man, this thing is just escalating. They came to Hillam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadezar, at their head, and when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Hillam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him, and the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians of the Syrians the men of seven hundred chariots and forty thousand horsemen, and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel. They made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. That's amazing. It's like when it tells you there were 40,000 horsemen that died, it doesn't even give us a number for foot soldiers. There's so many. And this is the amazing thing when I read this and think about the kindness of David and how it's rejected. What's incited is war, wrath. Thousands needlessly suffer and die. Not only soldiers, families, and mothers who lose their sons and generations of people affected. And at the end of the day, they're still all brought into, sub, 
subjection to David. At the end, David is still king and they're all subject to him. They still made peace with Israel and were subject to the people of Israel. The end result was the same. Kindness offered and received, David rules. Kindness offered and rejected, David rules. You guys, that's a picture of Jesus. We get that, right? That's Jesus. The end result is the same. David's kingship is acknowledged. Look at the end result at the end of the age. Jesus' kingship will be acknowledged. Every knee will bow, whether by grace or by war, whether by kindness or by wrath. The New Testament tells us every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Isaiah prophesied this about Jesus. He said that Jesus, when he came and for all eternity, would continue to hold out his hands in kindness. And Isaiah said that there would be people who would respond and they would become servants like Mephibosheth. They would say, I will serve you and in humility I will come before you. And the Lord says, I'll bless them and they'll share with the hungry They'll look after the needy. They'll be people of justice and equity. But the Lord also said this. They'll be wicked people to whom God will hold out his hands all day long and he will say, here I am, here I am. But they don't turn to him, which is rebellion. Do you know that that's wickedness? To just reject the Lord's kindness. I mean, whatever thought you think is wickedness, the most evil, depraved thing you can think of, Look at it, it's not that complicated. It is wicked to reject Jesus. And the servants of the Lord are to be those who are humble and contrite and tremble at his word and say, Lord, before you and before your kindness, I humble myself. Before your kindness and mercy, I repent. Before your grace, I am broken. And the Lord welcomes those who respond to him in that way to the table, but the rich and the proud and the stubborn and the wicked reject him. Paul said this in Romans 2, 4, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He, he says this, do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing, don't you know? Don't you know this, that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? That's why God's kind. It's an invitation to life at the table, to eat well, to be satisfied for salvation. Paul said in Ephesians 2, as was read to us earlier, that we're going to spend eternity exploring the grace of God's kindness towards us. That's how great the hesed of the Lord is. It's so deep and so rich. It's a well that never ends, that can't run dry, that's so amazing that it can be explored for all eternity and you will never tire of drinking of the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning I was, uh, I was laying in bed and kind of in that, you know, that half, you know that snooze. <laughs> We had a wonderful time uh, celebrating with 
Martin, Leanne, Harry, uh, Carol's passing and going into the presence of the Lord, sleeping. No death for those who know Jesus. They go to sleep. They enter into the presence of the Lord immediately. That's what the scripture tells us. She passed from this life into the next, face to face with Jesus. And so we celebrated. So, you know, I was like, I'm like, oh, last week's been busy. Where's that snooze button this morning? And I was, uh, I had this picture come into my mind, actually. I was just laying in bed and I saw this cabin in the woods. Like, just beautiful, picturesque, the one we all want to own, you know? Log cabin. Woods were full of snow and the trees were dressed like Christmas trees. It was just stunning. And the cabin was like a glow with light. Warmth of the fire. It's like, it was like emanating out of this cabin, the warmth and the invitation. And outside it was cold. <laughs> there was snow on the ground and the trees had their winter coat. And it was okay to be outside because the cabin door was open. The front door of this cabin was wide open. And like light was emanating out of it, the warmth. It was like cozy and inviting. And there was just like this, I had this, just had this sense in my heart. I'm like, wow, look at that. There's just like a standing invitation to enter. All you had to do was like walk in and enjoy the safety and the warmth and the comfort that was offered. But it was dusk. Dusk was falling on the forest and on the trees. In fact, it was getting dark. And I like, as I was thinking about it, I'm like seeing this. I'm like, oh, wow. It's like, it's going to get really cold. Outside, it's going to be really hard. <laughs> it won't be safe to be out of doors because it's going to be too cold and too dangerous. And standing in front of the cabin was a kid. <laughs> You know, just like in his stubborn refusal to come in, like a mom saying, you know, come for dinner or whatever. And it's like, well, I don't want to. And the door was open. All the warmth and covered, but the comfort and the kids set their feet on the ground and refused to enter. Just, just that picture of total stubbornness and the worst danger that he faced was not the cold. The worst danger he faced was that the door would be shut. Jesus said, I'm the door. Wide is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to life. Take heed because the gate is narrow. The way is hard. The way is hard that leads to life and few find it. Church, dusk is upon us. The door is open. But when it closes, it will happen suddenly. Don't reject the loving kindness of a Savior who reaches out His hands to you all day long. Don't reject the one who has opened the door. Kindness, it can be received and it can be rejected. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Would you guys stand with me? Lord Jesus, 
We humble ourselves before you this morning, Lord. Say, who are we? Dead dogs? Crippled men and women? Broken? Coming from a land that's barren? And Jesus, you invite us to life and life eternal. Say, come eat of me. Come drink of me. Come take in of my kingdom and my glory. Fellowship with me. Know my kindness and my grace. Lord, this morning we thank you that your word tells us that your grace is sufficient for us. We don't have to be perfect. Don't have to have our lives all together, buttoned up, neat and tidy like a Christmas present. Lord, you invite us to come with the mess. And you said this, that you're perfect, that, you're, that you are made perfect in our weakness. And so, Lord, we come weakness and trembling and fear for a living, holy God. So, Lord, we're empty-handed and we have nothing. But, Jesus, we come to eat and drink of you. We thank you today for opening the door, for going to the cross, for bearing our sin, for dying in our place, for demonstrating your power over sin and death by being raised from the dead. Jesus, we confess you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We confess Jesus and acknowledge whether by peace or by wrath every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus, we choose the path of peace, the hard path, the narrow path, Lord, would you keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord? We pray, God, that we would eat of the table often. That we'd eat the bread and know how it satisfies. We drink of you, Lord, and be quenched. Lord, would you expose the fallacy of other wells, of false tables, of false things that we eat of. Lord, we repent before you this morning. We confess, Jesus Christ, you are Lord. You are King. And before you, we bow, Lord. We want to receive your kindness. Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord.